0: Hello there, and welcome to another Paro seminar. I don't know what number this is now, we must be up in the uh, 30s or 40s. Um, as you know, uh, kind of one of the, you know, I don't want to say this was there from the beginning, although maybe it was there from the beginning in some form, but very much something that's become important to me and, and to my work is. Uh, basically drawing out the problems with a type of spirituality that sees the world as a type of balance a type of whole um, that offers us the idea that we can somehow uh, find satisfaction in this life or the next so in a religious way it's the idea that we can you know maybe get to heaven and in heaven we will find that uh, all of our desire is filled up that we get what we we most desire. Uh, We are fulfilled, we are satisfied. Our hearts are restless until finally they find their rest in God. Um, And then, you know, secular forms of this, which is that we can find satisfaction through certain commodities, uh, through a certain lifestyle. And it doesn't have to be a lifestyle of wealth. It can be a lifestyle in which you leave everything behind get a little house in the countryside and you know check out of society but whatever it is there's something that can offer you a type of satisfaction um and you know there's there's we've we've talked about religions of hedonism and religions that kind of offer us the thing or religions of nihilism which promise that we can escape the dissatisfaction of life by getting rid of our desire but ultimately we're caught up in um, dissatisfaction in so many ways uh, in our lives and we're caught up in discontent. And very early on in my work, I've been interested in what does it mean to desire in a productive way and in a way that brings meaning and depth to our lives and a way that brings positive transformation to the world. And the reason for that kind of question is because from early on, I've been influenced by the idea that fundamentally we are our desire. There's something fundamental about being human which is connected to desire. And I'm not gonna get into all of that now, but I'm just saying that, especially in the last few years, I've done critiques of kind of oneness theology and uh, looked at various forms of New Age spirituality and drawn out my concerns. And this seminar is just gonna continue that uh, I'm going to look at it in a slightly different way. We're going to look at Simone Vey, uh, We're going to look at Paul Tillich. Uh, we're going to look a little bit at Lacan. And we're going to look at particularly one issue, uh, which is the issue of God um, and our relation to God in terms of desire. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. Um, Simone Vey, uh, asked a very interesting question. She returned to it many times in the book Gravity and Grace. Now, Simone Weil, by the way, she like, um, was a very brilliant thinker, uh, but uh, didn't really um, engage in philosophy directly. She kind of wrote in aphorisms and in fragments. And, um, you know, but she, I think she came top of her year in the uh, Paris school. And, you know, she was part of the intellectual circles of her day. Um, a very, very brilliant thinker but we don't have very much in terms of, uh, as I say, kind of systematic work. But what she does give us um, is very pregnant, um, is very, very strong. And in Gravity and Grace, she comes back to a question a number of times. It actually kind of, um, it is the question that perhaps is the key to understanding the book. And the question is, and you've heard me say this before in other contexts, but is what does a miser lose? when they lose their treasure, right? And she is probably thinking about Aesop's Fable where a miser has treasure buried in the bottom of the garden and goes every week and counts the treasure. And one week, a robber steals the treasure. He comes back, the treasure's gone. and This miser bursts into tears and some neighbors ask him what happened. He says that this treasure was stolen. One of the neighbors says, well, what did you do with the treasure anyway? And he said, I didn't do anything with it. I just kept it buried under the tree and once a week I would count it. And so the neighbor picked up some pebbles and threw them into the hole and said, well, count those, it will do you as much good, right? Now, it's a really interesting question, right? What does the miser lose? Because the miser is incredibly upset, Um, but why? Because in a way, the miser hasn't lost Anything because the miser didn't use the treasure the treasure is value that can be used to purchase things, but that's not what he's doing Uh, But also um, He keeps the treasure. He has a certain distance to it. So there's there's something he's lost because he's crying There's something that's really affected him. He's not putting that on. He's not lying like the tears are real but what is it that he's crying about now, for Simone Weil, and this is very clever because it's a theory of desire, for Simone Weil, um, what the miser loses is a type of lack that generates his desire, that keeps his desire alive. So basically, what the miser has worked out is that the real enjoyment of treasure, of his treasure, is not in spending it or in just completely giving it away to other people and losing it. Um, It's in somehow having a type of relationship to its distance. It's about having some sort of spatial relation to it. Now, I guess at this point, it would be worth kind of just making a distinction between two types of desire, right? There's, we could call it animalistic desire, which is desire that can be satisfied, right? So when animals are looking for food or for shelter, Their desire can be satisfied, and when it's satisfied, you know, they're content. And we have those types of desires within us. Uh, We might be hungry and we eat. We might want to see friends. We go out. Uh, But we also have a type of excessive desire. An excessive desire that is not just kind of for utilitarian value, right? It's not just we look for things that will satisfy some need within us. But we experience this profound desire. And it's that profound desire that really makes us human. I mean, even at a very practical level, when you feel that level of desire in you, you will feel alive. I mean, whenever you say someone falls in love, you feel like you go like people will say, I just feel alive. You know, I was dead before, you know, I was just walking around. This is this is just kind of lit a fire within me. Or if someone is in love with a cause again, it's like, oh, once I discovered this cause, I discovered a meaning of life. Uh, If you were doing the book study that we were doing on Paul Tillich, he was talking about um, ultimate concern as uh, something that we will give our life to, something that we will live and die for. But then he clarified it, he said, like I don't mean literally like kill yourself for or sacrifice yourself for but, but more deeply it's something that makes life worth living and when you lose it it makes life a form of death and so in kind of religious language uh, you can talk about life and death so whenever Jesus often talks about life and death it's not about physical death and physical life right he says I have come to bring life and life in all its fullness but he's not talking about obviously literal life or let the dead bury the dead when he's talking about the first type of death is a living death so you have this very kind of religious concept not of life and death in a purely um, empirical way but we can talk about life and death as a form of being in the world in which we feel like we are kind of like standing out that there is something um, something that is giving us a reason for existence so not just existence, a reason for existence, and that's what we're talking about here, right? The miser has found a way of having an intense enjoyment through not having the treasure. So if he spends the money, if he uses the treasure, he'll get things that will be enjoyable, but he will lose that that incredible satisfaction that he's experiencing, and if it's stolen from him again, it will be taken away. So for Simone Weil, the miser is an example of someone who in a negative way uh, shows us the truth of desire. That the most powerful form of desire, human desire, is not really desire for something. It's a type of desire for nothing. It's, a, it's inflamed by a lack, right? Lack is central to this incredible form of desire. And that actually, we don't want to satisfy that desire. It's actually that lack um, and that, that kind of fire of desire that is itself pleasurable. There's something powerful in it. So if you're in love with someone and they are kind of inaccessible in some way, I mean, there's still a passion and an enjoyment of the struggle to try to win them over or to be with them and uh it's kind of like almost like that's that's where the incredible thing is so for example you know marriage or breaking up with someone can both be traumatic events because like the miser is treasure right the object of your desire is a person potentially if you marry them it's like uh, closing the distance between them and maybe then you'll fall into kind of boredom or if you break up with them it's like someone stealing the treasure that person goes off with someone else and we all have seen this in our own lives or other people's lives where the person's fine until they see their partner or their ex-partner with somebody else and then they just fall apart. They break down because that has brought home to them that that what they had that was generating all of this desire is now utterly gone and inaccessible. So. You know the marriage analogy kind of fits to some extent with the miser right that's always kind of a bit of a dilemma for people um is uh you know the extinguishing of love through either either extreme or no the extinguishing of desire through either extreme um and we'll come back to love at the end of the seminar because there's a there's a way that's less tragic than that that sounds terrible it's like the bridges of madison county when the woman can either be with her husband and be depressed but he's a nice guy but or run away with the um the photographer who's this incredibly interesting person but you know it's going to be a disaster right but it's kind of you're caught in this tragic uh between a rock and a hard place so Simone Vegas, right there is something about desire that that involves not having and actually the miser has developed a strategy for keeping that alive so the, the miser is enjoying their lack they are going down they're counting their treasure there's something enjoyable about not spending this um, it's also having a negative impact on their life potentially but we'll skip that right counting the treasure having this pleasure um, you could call this a type of quantum indeterminacy right where the miser is able to maintain a space between presence and absence. So we have particle geality. This is like presence, absence, geality. The miser has the treasure, but doesn't have the treasure. And in that space, uh, desire is born. So it's a type of Schrödinger's cat, Schrödinger's treasure, right? And uh, the problem, of course, for the miser is this, uh, just like Schrödinger's cat, right? The cat is put in a box and there is a, a, a poison, a poison capsule and if this uh you know subatomic particle uh degenerates the poison is released and if it doesn't the poison isn't released and the whole idea if you you don't know the the thought experiment is that because of quantum undecidability when you don't observe this quantum particle it's in every state so it's both decomposed and not decomposed which means the gas is both being released and not being released which means the cat is both alive and dead, right? That's as long as you don't observe, but as soon as you open the box to observe the cat, it'll be either alive or dead, right? So your observation crunches this indeterminacy into uh, a binary opposition, right? That's in basic. So in a way, that's what this treasure is, right? the miser is keeping this type of presence absence duality but it can be crunched into a position either the miser gets too close and uses the treasure or it's stolen away and so this is where Simone Weil comes in Simone Weil says that the miser gives us a glimpse into what we mean by the word god so Simone Weil isn't arguing for the existence of god in fact this could be an argument for the non-existence of god right um she says that basically that religious practice and religious uh, uh, symbols point to a type of treasure that can never be uh, appropriated, taken, or stolen. You can a, a treasure that you cannot grasp and also you cannot escape from. And you know you've got all of these religious ideas of you, know, no matter how far you run, you know. God will always be there. You will never be separated from God. And at the other side, all of this stuff about how you can never grasp God, see the face of God, that there is always this absolute chasm between you and the absolute. So you do have these, this kind of quantum dimension within re- religious language. And Vey is basically saying that God is the name for this nothingness, that generates human desire that 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 makes us desirable creatures and so in a strange way and this is the trick for Simone Weil right she could say nothing satisfies us right so the the common sense way of hearing that phrase is nothing satisfies us no thing will ever give you satisfaction when you grasp the treasure it will not live up to that excessive experience or the fantasy that you have for it. Nothing will. But then Simone Vey adds the second meaning, which is nothing can satisfy us, which is we can't directly realize that the lack is what generates desire. And if we directly embrace the lack itself, we will find a form of satisfaction. In fact, for Simone Weil, this will make us not misers, right? Because we won't care about earthly treasures, we won't care. We'll, we'll be freed from this notion that some material thing in the world will bring us absolute satisfaction, which is the promise of sacred and secular religions. It's what hooks us. It's often what hooks us into jaws we don't like. it. It hooks us into trying to get things that we think will fix us. It gets us, you know, getting into self-help and all this kind of stuff, right? We are every day kind of caught up in the idea that something will satisfy us. And the terror is the idea that nothing will satisfy us. But then Simone Weil goes to a third position, right? So there's, there's like the fear that nothing will satisfy you. And then there's the hope that something will satisfy you. And then there is the hope that nothing will satisfy you, right? Um, The negation of negation. As you go back to the idea that nothing will satisfy you, but the emphasis now is on on nothing, nothingness as a thing, that we can directly enjoy what we do not have. This, by the way, is what C.S. Lewis means by the word joy. When he wrote his book, Surprised by Joy, he was basically reflecting on this feeling of heaven that, that doesn't exist that he doesn't have that brings him joy that he would have these moments in which he would feel the desire for heaven he would realize that he doesn't have heavens so he, he doesn't have the thing that he desires and instead of that being painful it would be joyous it would bring life to him right. This is all very interesting. Oh, and by the way, that means for Simone Weil, um, it's like, it's not even that she's going like, well, God might not exist. She's kind of almost saying, well, God doesn't exist. God is the name for a non-existent reality, right? Uh, this is why it's always very hard to read Simone Weil because atheism is the in the heart of theism, right? There's a, there's a certain sense in which As soon as you objectify God and say, there is God, that is not God. That's crunching the indeterminacy into a position that you can grasp. And so you can't look at Simone Weil and go, oh, she's arguing for the existence of God or not the existence of God. I mean, the word God is simply the name for a type of quantum indeterminacy that that we existentially experience in our lives, that we can directly embrace, that we can directly know. Um, okay, uh, I'm tempted to see if you know, ask if you're kind of following me here, but I'm going to keep going to the end, and then I'll, I'll look at your questions. Now, I want to now just move on to Paul Tillich, and. I'm going to, because there's a lot of what Tillich is doing that is similar to Simone Weil, right? Uh, but there's a different uh, dimension to it, which I think is actually more productive. So, first of all, Tillich has a similar notion of God. And like Simone Weil, he is not trying to argue for the existence of God as a being, right? Um, Tillich and, and Weil are both fundamentally against that, so much so that they say that arguments for the existence of God are. Are forms of atheism, because the God that you you end up with is the, is not the God is not what it's not what religious symbolism is pointing to in the word God, because it becomes an object that you can know in some way and therefore grasp in some way. So both of them reject this this approach, um, and also both of them are kind of phenomenological, in the sense that they both start with an experience of desire. Right there, Simone Weil is in gravity and grace. Is talking about not God, but a type of desire, and then from that type of desire comes to a definition of God. And oh, and this is central to her term "gravity and grace." I'll just explain that and then move on. The reason why this book is called "gravity and grace" is that the world of gravity is the world of things and objects and it's the world of physicality, right? Gravity, you know, literally everything that's pulled down. And kind of symbolically for Simone Weil, if the world was pure gravity, we're just full of things, um, then uh, there would be no space for subjectivity. There would be no space for, for desire what one needs is grace and grace is not a thing so it's not in gravity grace is an openness to a future possibility grace is the experience of an openness to another possible world to other possible avenues it's kind of like grace is what breaks open gravity and so what Simone Vey is basically saying is the world is not pure gravity I mean you could even make this into a metaphysical argument that the world is not pure being, stuff. Because if it was, there, if there were no gaps, right? If there was no novelty or possibility or process, um, there wouldn't be anything, or all there would be is stuff, the pure thingness, which which would be pure nothingness, right? So, you know, Shimonve is kind of going, so there has to be kind of like a gap, uh, breaks, fissures within the world of gravity, and she calls that grace and the religious individual is the one who directly orients themselves to those gaps to the to the openness to the future and you can hear elements of someone like john caputo in this where john caputo talks about religion as an openness to the future to other possibilities to other understandings so never tries to close things down and says here it is and uh, we can see this in buddhism where he say if you meet the buddha on the road kill him Because the Buddha, if the Buddha was crunched into space and time, there in space and time, well, it wouldn't be the Buddha. There's something about the Buddha that is not graspable, that is always a to come. Okay, so Paul Tillich has something similar. He talks about God as a type of um, transcendental, a ground of being, he calls this ground of being that we can never grasp, that we find ourselves somehow um, estranged from, but unable to be one with. So Tillich, and Tillich's not starting with the notion of God, he actually starts with this, this is an experience of being human, is to be alienated, to be estranged, to be dissatisfied, to not find satisfaction in objects and in things um that there is something about struggle and, and estrangement that is part of the human condition that we all feel Now like most of us deny it we repress it um, we hide from it but Tillich's argument is it's it's always at work it's always there and um uh it's always possible to kind of begin to unpick it or bring it to the surface in our quieter moments in our more reflective moments and so for Tillich, god cannot be objectified but also god is not something that you completely can uh, remove yourself from he says god is not a stranger which is because you can remove yourself from a stranger you can happen to meet a stranger you can run away from a stranger he says god is we are estranged from the absolute which means you're to be estranged from your family means you're part of your family, but also not part of your family. Again, this type of indeterminacy is at work. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> this is where Simone Vey and Paul Tillich are different. And this is where I think Tillich has something more important than, than Vey. Vey is a type of um ascetic in many ways. Like a Simone Vey um was very much someone who was not of the world, who directly embraced a type of nothingness. I mean, even to the extent of eating disorders, I mean, she basically died from starvation, which is a direct eating of the nothing, right? Um, so there's all of these elements of Simone Vei's life, but also of her practice where she was completely detached from kind of the material world. She had a deep care and concern for people, and, but no um, connection with materiality. I mean, so there is a there is a very ascetic kind of dimension to to her life, um, because for her, you can God is the nothing. God is the non-existent reality <clears throat> that we can directly embrace and enjoy directly enjoy the lack. Um, in contrast, Paul Tillich says the only way to encounter the nothingness of God <clears throat> is through some concrete thing. Um, and this is what he calls ultimate concern, where he says that the only way for you to experience some transcendental reality and for both Tillich and Simone Weil, transcendental reality is, is what sparks true human desire so a pure scientistic or atheistic in the new atheism sense of um uh, the world that view of the world which says there is no transcendental dimension there is no non-material dimension to, to existence is a way of basically extinguishing desire it's a way of kind of saying all human desire is just animal desire. There is no ultimate, there is no infinite passion, as Kierkegaard would say, there's no ultimate concern. There's no There's no sense of something that is not just valuable, or very valuable, but is of infinite value. Right? That's what Paul Tillich means by ultimate concern, is there are things in our lives that we value, and there's things in our lives that we value highly, but there's also things in the world that we value infinitely, that we think that we should give our lives for, that we should sacrifice everything for. Now, we may never do that. We may be too weak to do it, but we feel the call, we feel the sense that there are some things, and often it's a child, someone gives birth to a child and they literally feel that they would, there is a call from the child that calls them the parent, demands of the parent everything everything and even if the parent doesn't live up to that call they feel that call now that's a call of the transcendental it's something that is more than just in the finite world more than something that has value it has infinite worth um almost it's priceless right It, it it that's what the word priceless means it kind of it's so valuable but then it actually Uh, leaves the realm of price altogether so Paul Tillich starts with this notion goes that exists no matter how much we try to deny it right we feel it in our being the artist feels the pool of beauty that they can never paint or put into a sculpture the philosopher and the scientist feel the, the pool of truth that they can never grasp it's always to come um, the lawyer and the judge they feel that the pool of justice that they can never actually incarnate in law right um, All of these people in different ways are are pulled along by something that they that is transcendental that cannot be brought into the realm of being and yet it informs them and drives them And for Tillich this is always expressed in a concrete thing, right? For the say the philosopher, it's in logic, or in the uh, for the for the uh, ethicist, it is in justice, and for the artist, it's in beauty. Um, in in various areas, this transcendental dimension makes its presence felt. For the parents, it might be the child. For the for the lover, it's the beloved, right? Um, and. So for Tillich, you cannot find satisfaction, you cannot kind of like leave the realm of the material to to directly embrace the transcendental. You always have to embrace something material, a cause, a person, um, an idea. You embrace that in such a way that it it sparks off your desire for what is more than it right? It becomes what's called an icon, right? An idol is an object which gives you everything there visually in front of it. Icon comes from Eidos and, and same term as um, ideology, idolatry and ideology from the same root, which is kind of like to to give you the, the transcendental in the finite, to give you the answer. There is God in front of you. There is the truth in front of you. An icon is where you have something in front of you that you love, but that draws your gaze into something beyond. It's uh, non-totalizable. There is a dimension to the icon that is not reduced to the icon, right? So the icon is what draws you into the transcendental. And so for Tillich, uh, we need icons. Um, He thinks religion at its best, is Well, for him, there's two extremes. We all face this. On one extreme is idolatry, our de- demonic uh, life. And on the other is emptiness or a kind of one-dimensionality, right? So in our daily lives, we can kind of like life can be robbed of its desire. Now, it's always there to some extent, but we, we repress it, we hide it, we get on with our daily lives, and we don't feel this... This, this, this passion for the impossible, this passion for the transcendental. And so we just watch TV, just get on with our daily lives, and we don't feel overly alive, we don't feel overly dead, we're just kind of like getting by. And that's always a danger. And for Tillich that's the danger of what he calls quasi-religions or secular religions. And then the other danger is the demonic, which is where you have symbols of the transcendental, justice love god right you have these symbols of something absolute but you think that you can absolutely grasp them you think you can have them in your hand you know what justice is when you fully know what justice is you can do you can do anything right you know what you know what justice is for Atilic, religious language at its best is designed to point to the transcendental or give it shape without claiming to have it, right? So we need language, whatever language it is, the language of the artist, the philosopher, the, the priest, whatever, the, we need a type of discourse that is neither scientistic, reducing the world to pure being, nor superstitious, um, which is a kind of way of being able to control the transcendental of feels that we can have it in our hands, that we can manipulate it in various ways. So for Tillich, like, scientism and superstition are the two dangers that theology is supposed to protect us from by creating a type of discourse that is centered and finite but opens us up to the infinite and one way of describing what that might look like is maybe i mean the example of uh, my own work for example where i'm trying to articulate certain ideas i'm uh, trying to put power of theology into language and it always feels Because I'm trying to say something that kind of isn't graspable because it doesn't really exist. But every failure to describe it, right, uh, creates something, hopefully sometimes productive, and it helps to develop the idea. So all I'm doing is constantly failing to articulate what parotheology is. Well, paratheology isn't anything. It's just a made-up word, right? But every time that I try to define what it is, it kind of comes a little bit more into existence, but there is something in the word that is still to come, which is what generates the desire. And that's kind of like um, an example of just what Paul Tillich is talking about here. And I think that Paul Tillich's stuff then adds something to, or kind of, kind of grinds Simone Vay's idea, right? Both of them understand that desire um, is desire for the impossible, for something that is not reducible to the finite. But whereas one seems to say that that we can directly embrace that nothingness, we can be satisfied by it. Uh, Paul Tillich says, no, there's a, there is actually a, a a satisfying dissatisfaction, that what we need to do is not like leave the world of things, but attach ourselves to certain things in the world, certain people, certain causes, all the while not reducing them to some sort of idolatrous thing i mean he uses the example of nationalism he says when national nationalism isn't wrong like if you love your country and you want to do good for your country and you want to see your country prosper nothing necessarily wrong about that but he says fascism is a demonic form of nationalism where it's your country right or wrong your country is the absolute whatever the state does is kind of like is the incarnation of the truth and stalinism is the demonization of socialism and uh um what other ones does he use he has a variety of these ones, but even within you know catholicism the crusades is the demonization of that and we see it in 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 every form there is there's ways in which we um experience the transcendental and sometimes those symbols can then become idolatrous and close it down. All right. Um, and then I just wanna connect this then with Lacan because Lacan, who really liked Simone Weil's aphorism, um, ultimately uh, thinks that there, there's a fundamental problem with it. And he prefers the example of love to understand how desire functions. And he uses the uh, very extreme example of courtly love and courtly love was um, amour courtois was this notion of love that was kind of invented in around the 13th century in France and it was the idea that um, a knight would fall in love with a noble woman and the noble woman would be married to somebody else and the noble woman would love the knight but they would be separated they wouldn't be able to be together because a noble woman was with somebody else. The knight was dedicated to the protection of the realm. And so what would happen is the knight would um, basically devote himself to the lady and would do all and would fight for her and would ultimately die for her. And that was a very powerful kind of like love triangle, right? And what that was happening between the lover and the beloved was, was this deep passion that was generated through prohibition. But it wasn't just pure prohibition because they did love each other, they desired each other, they were intimately connected in their separation. And love is kind of like that. Love is a type of embracing of the finite of someone and also sublimating them, of seeing within this finite person something that is transcendental something that is not reducible to their personality or to what they wear or to what they look like um, or to any of those other factors which can be taken away but that they are the icon um, so you're, you kind of like you value them so much because they are the icon they are your window into the transcendental dimension so they are infinitely valued and yet there's something um non-reducible about them that whereas somebody else doesn't have that right someone you could agree with someone about the characteristics of a person but one of them loves that person the other doesn't because for one they're an icon for the other they aren't so all of that to say what they and Tillich and Lacan all have in common here is a critique of the idea that we want satisfaction. right? All of them are saying, we don't want satisfaction. Now, Simone Weil is the one who's kind of saying, well, it's kind of like a religion of nihilism in a way. It's like, we can be satisfied in not having, right? And so she's kind of drawn to that. And what Tillich and Lacan are saying is, well, now we can't even be satisfied in not having (laughs) there is an inherent dissatisfaction we can't ever fully find satisfaction in getting something or in leaving it behind and directly embracing nothing what we do is we find things in the world that open up a sense of the transcendental and religious discourse for someone like Tillich that is what it's designed to do Um, in terms of paratheology, how all this fits is the paratheological idea is, um, if you've kind of been following me for a while, you know, I kind of love Sheehan's notion of Christ crying out, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" as a type of example of how there is a lack at the heart of everything, even the heart of the absolute, and as we discover that lack, and as we make room and space for that lack within us we are able to find peace we are satisfied in our dissatisfaction and so within paratheology it's a critique of the of the kind of like the satisfaction theology um and it's also a critique of a kind of nihilism it's a desire for what maybe camus called the absurd this weird sense of being satisfied by dissatisfaction finding contentment in our lack of contentment and in our struggles and that there's something profoundly theological about that notion. And there is actually something profoundly scientific about that notion, but religion is about us existentially experiencing it. Um, One thing about Tillich, by the way, which we talked about in the book group, is that uh, Tillich is kind of saying that when you love, when you love yourself, for example, what you're doing is, you're not saying right. You're perfect, right? There's an idea of maybe we're we are perfect the way we are, and there is no lack or gap within us. This is just some sort of illusion, and you kind of like uh, accept. You're kind of that we are already there. We're already perfect. We're already part of the whole. But neither is it that um, you know we're not there yet, and we have to strive, and there's somewhere to get to. So when you feel guilty, for example, you feel guilty because you are not someone you think you should be. You have a vision of who you should be and you're falling short of that and that experience is guilt. For Tillich, the response to guilt is not either to say, well, you really already are perfect, so don't feel guilty, right? Nor is it "Well, you should feel guilty but you could through hard work get to who you really are, right, there is a real you and you just have to strive for it. For Tillich, he says, no, to love and to love yourself is to embrace the guilt that the sense that there is a lack within you, there is a dissatisfaction within you and to not try to always overcome it and to not try to deny it but to find a place of acceptance for it and as you do that you will actually become a better person right? the very, and this is grace and this is the Pauline idea of right. the law tells you what you should do but also is the thing that stops you from doing it Whereas love is this thing that says you don't have to do anything, right? You're accepted, right? Grace, you feel this acceptance. And in the the ability to accept the dissatisfaction and the lack that is within you, you actually find yourself able to live better in the world, to be a nicer person in the world. So that's just kind of an analogy of how kind of in theology, the idea is not to run from the lack or try to deny it, but somehow try to find a way to mobilize it in in a positive way. Okay, just gonna look and see if you've got any questions and uh, take it from there, let's see. Oh yeah, Julie, I think Julie, your cornflower girl, you love the layered meaning between nothing and no thing. Yes, I I was uh, reading the article that I put, um, that accompanied this, which I realized once I put it in, it's actually a very difficult article, but the first couple of pages, beautifully outline what Simone Bay is saying so the other stuff you probably need a background in, in psychoanalysis but the first few pages of the article that I included for this for this uh, seminar um, whenever I read you know, nothing satisfies us said, oh, that's brilliant yeah yeah that's the, the move from nothing can satisfy you to nothing is satisfying um, let's see So Rob says, with this thinking, could we make a distinction between fulfillment and satisfaction? We know we will never be fulfilled and always lack. And in this, we can be satisfied. So a dialectic move. Yeah, absolutely. I often use fulfillment and satisfaction in, you know, interchangeably because like in a popular way they are. But I think that's a good way of saying like fulfillment is the word full to fulfill and to fulfill something is to make it filled but satisfaction doesn't have that connotation i don't know what the etymology is but to be satisfied doesn't have the same strength of fulfillment so i think you can definitely make a distinction there a distinction that's often made uh and todd mcgowan uses it between pleasure and enjoyment that enjoyment is the type of happiness that comes from not having so so there is a type of pleasure that comes from having something the toy at christmas uh winning the lottery is pleasurable but the enjoyment is uh in imagining you're going to win the lottery and um the reason why i like that is because joy is a theological concept and joy the way c.s lewis describes it is the pleasure of not having and so um i also think that's a good one so fulfillment satisfaction pleasure and enjoyment i think can can help us understand this Uh, gabrielle uh he's you've got you you know psychoanalysis very well um so this so this is really in your wheelhouse it says the death of the father opens up a space for that nothing to be a nothing that um is there and always and is always open according to vay that would be grace in psychoanalysis that's castration okay yes so the death of the father opens up a space for that nothing to be a nothing um According to Vey, that would be grace and psychoanalysis castration Yes, I think so. Um, funnily enough, the way it's put in the article um, is that for Vey, you know, God is the treasure that cannot be grasped. Um, and uh, that, the name for that for Lacan is the phallus. But the phallus is connected to castration. The phallus is basically a nothing. It's a, a something that is nothing. So yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that that's, that's really right. Um, Kate says, so what is the difference for Vae between the God she describes and the one that just doesn't exist? <laughs> Why is that kind of God needed? I'm thinking of the invisible gar- gardener thought experiment. Yeah, I mean, this is... This is clever for both Ve and Tillich, is that God just doesn't exist. Like, it's not that God doesn't exist. God is non-existent. God is a non-existent being. And that's a big, that's why sometimes some of these thinkers, and I've used this term, you know, atheism doesn't go far enough because the non-existence of God is kind of like leads to an emptiness, but God is a non-existent thing. As in a kind of a gap, a hole, um, is kind of kind of explains desire in a more fundamental way. That there's not just a kind of um, yeah, there's not just kind of like a, a nothing. There is, as what Gabrielle was saying, a new no thing. Um, so the reason why they thinks that atheism is, um, I mean, if anything, just kind of shallow. It's because it's, I guess, maybe it says it's like this is why a lot of atheism and humanism is connected with evolutionary psychology, right? They're all really intertwined because evolutionary psychology basically says that humans, uh, human subjectivity is like just functions on evolutionary lines. We're utilitarians, right? Utilitarianism is another form. These are all very connected. You'll find in smart people, they'll be utilitarians, evolutionary biologists, humanists and atheists. And someone like Vae would feel that the thing they're missing is the no thing that actually makes humans humans. This, um, uh, you know, we lack in a different way than other animals. The lack is, it's like the difference between nothing and debts, right? Having no money and debt. Um, I don't know if I'm answering the question. Let's see what you said again. So what's it? Yeah. So, but, so that's it. It's like, it's like the difference between nothing and debt. It's going like, no, you have to have the mystics. The mystical atheism is so much more profound. Like there's something about the universe that has an act of nothing and nothing that is something. Um, and, the, and this, this is funny. This is different from as I say what's going on in the world of physics, but there's it's an analogous kind of conversation right there's a there's a um or in mathematics and that kind of stuff so i don't know if that that answers it it's just atheism is an attempt to kind of just is to render the nothing nothing it's the difference between analytic philosophy and continental philosophy as well and analytic philosophers they go like why are you talking about nothing nothing is nothing it's of no value whereas continental philosophers generally think that there is a type of cut in reality that that is something that generates desire that generates ethics that generates profound evil that generates diversity within biological organisms so there's a there's a type of nothing that is actually profoundly transformative um yeah so it's almost like saying zero as soon as you say zero you've symbolized it you've made it into something and that was an advance for mathematics uh so oh, scott says what's pete what's your ultimate concern um yeah and i always want like can you um you know if if your ultimate concern is whatever it is that drives that that kind of opens up the transcendental dimension to you one of the ways that that reflects in my life on the vague occasion that it does is maybe especially when i was writing back when i wrote six it was like six books years ago i haven't written for a while i need to get back to it but well, the reason why i wrote six books in a row very quickly was because there was something driving something i was trying to say that kept feeling and uh so i think there was a dimension of that going on there you know and and you know it reflects in one's personal life as well you know so but uh i'd have to think about that uh kate says Oh, Gabrielle says, the debt that is something and the debt that is forgiven and becomes nothing. Absolutely. That's, that's uh, yeah, very, very key. Just uh, Gabrielle's bringing up this idea of like whenever a debt is paid, um, you know, it's filled when a debt's forgiven. The nothing that's something is rendered nothing. Funnily enough, the Lord's Prayer, the original, um, is, is about debts. You know, so and if you read, I think it's in the King James. You read, uh, "Forgive us our debts, as we forgive the debts of others." Um, so it's not like you know, you know, repay our debts as we pay the debts of others. It actually is, and it's supposedly um, somebody was telling me the other day that it was connected with economic factors like that you can connect the lord's prayer to to kind of like a dig at some of the economic issues of the day so forgive forgive our debtors um it's not like forgive your sins it's something um almost economic uh kate is the lover versus the beloved the embodiment of the difference between desire and love hence why romance is about trying to bring the two into the same person yeah so um yeah Something I talked about in The Fundamentalist, which Kate's referring to, is, you know, we can desire what we don't have and we can love what we do. So someone can love the person they're with and desire someone they're not with and not desire the person that they love, but, but desire someone that they don't love, right, <laughs> uh, to, to, to cut into very simple categories. And you could say that desire in that way is in the, the register of lack that often we desire something that is either not we can't get or is under threat of being taken away. So someone desires when they're jealous because there's a threat someone's going to take my partner away and that generates their desire. Or they're like, I really am attracted to that person who, who I can't go out with because they're with somebody else. And that impossibility generates desire. And then love. I mean, more precisely, maybe... Um, I was where was I? Uh, Todd McGowan? Maybe say this: that love itself, in its purest or its best form, is where is actually ca- the embrace of desire as well. But um, but yeah, you can love. You know, you love the person you're with. You desire the person you're not with. And romance. I, I use the term romance as the art of bringing the two to the bringing the two together. And that's what um, that's what you could say a good relationship is is whenever, you know, almost taking courtly love, which is this extreme sense of not having, and kind of marrying the person you really desire, but in some way maintaining some sort of distance to them. I mean, difficult to do, but yeah, the art of romance is the art of bringing desire and love together. At least that's what I was arguing in The Fundamentalists. Um, I'll just do a couple more. Uh, Daniel, would there be... Uh, a way to move on from the miser's desire is he fearful of spending his money because this would bring him into reality is he fearful of reality yeah this is what i've talked about before actually is that one thing about the miser is misers usually have a terrible life they're completely um, in poverty and maybe have terrible relationships with other people especially because they're keeping the treasure not just from themselves but from other people i mean this is something that Um, is very important is a miser often gets enjoyment not only from not having the treasure themselves but for other people not having them right so like Jeff Bezos for example like um, has so much money that he can't spend right Uh, but also nobody else can it's removed from the economy I mean there's a certain amount of his money that's not removed from the economy but there's a massive amount that he can't use because as I say there's only a certain amount of cars and clues you can have but also nobody else can use so misers often get some sort of weird enjoyment from other people not having it as well anyway but um in that way the miser's treasure is like a fetish object that prevents them from seeing the poverty of their existence and uh, i think, think there's something really really important in that and i think this is the problem with simone vey i mean her life was a mess it was a it was horrific it was like the life of a miser not she wasn't a miser she was the opposite she was this incredibly um gracious and completely selfless individual but her life was um you know a one of suffering and uh, one of profound depression and pain so i i think that's one of the reasons why lacan ultimately didn't think the analogy of the miser was good there's there's something about the miser that that when you follow that analogy um kind of so disconnects us with the world that we somehow can live in abject poverty and not, and not um, feel the pain of that. Which, by the way, Simone Vey would advocate for. I mean, she kind of advocated for an extreme asceticism where you embrace poverty, you have no desire for any treasures, right? You eat bread, drink water, kind of like have no interest in the world. And that's why I like and prefer Tillich's Ultimate Concern, because Ultimate Concern, you can't do that. Their only way to the Transcendental is through an embrace of the material, not every material, it's but an embrace of something in the world that opens up the Transcendental and therefore means you're not embracing some extreme kind of disembodied, kind of amaterial kind of life. Oh yes, uh, someone's asked me, can I clarify Das Ding from the article? If you read the article Das Ding is, um, I guess initially Das Ding was the name for the mother, right, or the primary caregiver um, who you're separated from and then you always want to get back to, but you never can. Um, what we're, we're kind of marked by this sense of a loss. When you separate from your primary caregiver, through a third, which is symbolically the father who separates the mother and the child, right? But, um, but those can be played by anybody. Um, that, but when the two separate, um, there is a feeling of a profound loss and the lost object can be called thing the thing, that we're marked by, that we want to return to. So it's the nothing that generates our desire. So we're always looking for something that will be like the thing, but we never find it. Um, And so, you know, people manipulate that all the time by giving us the idea of objects that might be dusting. Um, So that's one way of understanding it, um, is it's kind of like this, this, it's the kind of the, let let us call it the echo of the loss of the mother, um, rendered into an object um, that we want back, but we can't get back because it it never existed. All right, thank you so much, I hope that was it. Like what I was doing there was basically mostly doing that thinking off the top of my head, getting this stuff into into some sort of like uh, structure so that I can kind of maybe make this into a chapter of a book. I'm thinking of writing a book called God Is Not. Um, is dash not, so you read it, God is not. God is the kind of quantum indeterminacy. And I'm thinking of starting with Simone Veil. So really what you've been doing is helping me work out potentially the first chapter of that book. So I appreciate you being my guinea pigs. Thank you so much and um, I'll see you all again soon. Take care. Bye bye.